Good evening. Okay, that's LA Philharmonic excitement. That's Disney Hall. Wow, we're happy to be here. That's, it's not raining, and we didn't have to worry about slick roads on the way. That's that kind of... Uh, welcome to Upbeat Live. I'm Alan Chavin, and may I present at the piano, Maurice Ravel. Now that is a recording he made in 1922, and you may say, wow, that's tremendous fidelity for 1922. Actually, the recording was made on a piano more recently, but he did indeed record that performance on what was called a reproducing piano. This was a super player piano that could capture all the nuances, so you really get to hear how he played. Rachmaninoff also made a number of piano roles, and the first time he did it, he was sort of skeptical, and then he heard the playback, and he said to the people at the company, he said, gentlemen, I have just heard Rachmaninoff play the piano. So he, en he endorsed this, and it captures everything. It captures phrasing, nuances, pedal, dynamics, everything is there. Uh, I started with the version for piano of the Pavan because, as you may know, the orchestral version of the Pavan that he also created is on the program. Uh, but probably, as wonderful and popular as the Pavan is, uh, Ravel himself made a comment to his fellow composer, Arthur Oniger, he said, I've written only one masterpiece. Unfortunately, there's no music in it. And the piece he was talking about was... So yes, Bolero. And you may know the famous story at the premiere of Bolero, a woman in the audience stood up and said, he's mad. And Ravel responded, she understood the piece. <laughs> now, he said there's no music in Bolero, but of course there is music in Bolero. And what sustains the piece over its 15 to 16 minutes is his command of orchestral color. And because that figures in two pieces in tonight's program, I decided that I would talk about my own personal short list of masters of orchestral color and give you just a quick look at that list. Now bear in mind that composers have to write effectively for all instruments of the orchestra. And you know, I'm sometimes asked, do, do they write all the notes that everybody plays? And the answer is yes, except in certain circumstances, film composers will often have other people orchestrate Broadway composers, but the so-called serious composers, they come up with every note that everybody's going to play. Uh, so they all have to write effectively, but some go beyond that. In the same way that, let's say, you could hand the same set of paints to a number of painters, even great artists, and only a Rembrandt 
can make it seem like light is emanating from the canvas. So whether you're talking about visual art or musical art, there are people who go above and beyond. And so here very quickly are the five in my short list of great masters of orchestral color. First, a piece that the composer himself, who was self-taught, strangely enough, uh, he said he wanted to write a piece that would glitter with orchestral color, dazzling orchestral color. It's Rimsky-Korsakov, and the piece is his Capriccio Espanol. Our next master of orchestral color was actually Rimsky-Korsakov's protege, a guy named Igor Stravinsky. This is from The Firebird. So far, Rimsky-Korsakov, Rimsky-Korsakov's protege, Igor Stravinsky, and now number three on my list, an Italian who went to Russia to play the viola, and guess who he studied orchestration with? Rimsky-Korsakov. His name is Autorino Respighi, and this is the opening of his Pines of Rome, which to me is the orchestral equivalent of Technicolor. Now, not everyone on my list is either Rimsky or connected to Rimsky. Our next entry is one of Ravel's countrymen, Debussy, and this is from his Nocturnes. And of course, of the five entries on here, the one who's represented tonight, Maurice Ravel. Uh, and I've always thought that what I'm about to play for you is the most amazing demonstration of Ravel's orchestral skill. It's his depiction of sunrise from the work you're going to hear, the second suite from Daphnis and Chloe. Uh, there are flutes at the beginning, flutes moving, sort of rippling, alternating with clarinets rippling. There's harp, 
there are strings which are very subtle. Uh, there's an indication from Ravel right there in the score. No sound but the murmur of rivulets produced by the dew that trickles from the rocks. That's something you don't normally run across in a, in a score or in a part. Now, this is a bit longer than my usual musical examples, but this is one of those instances where it refuses to be cut off any sooner than where I've done it. So this is about a minute of music this time, but it's gotta be. Sunrise. So I think if, if you wanted to know what a sunrise sounds like, Ravel has given it to you in Daphnis and Chloe. Now Daphnis and Chloe is based on a romance from fourth century Greece. This story's been around. Ravel referred to his score as a vast musical fresco, a depiction of Greece that was actually inspired by the French artists of the 19th century, excuse me, the 18th century. And the story, uh, which goes so far back, right, uh, has been, called the first romance novel. In brief, two children, a boy and a girl, are found abandoned on a Greek island, two years apart. The boy, Daphnis, is taken in and raised by a goat herd. Chloe is taken in by a shepherd. And the two children become friends as they tend their family's flocks. As teenagers, they fall in love, but of course there are obstacles that prevent them from being together, without which we would have no story. Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe was premiered in Paris in 1912 by Sergei Diaghilev and his Ballet Russe. That was a year before the very same company premiered the ballet that shook the world repeatedly, The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. Now, the members of the ballet corps had difficulty with the rhythms of some of Ravel's dances, especially uh, the concluding Danse Générale, which is in 5-4. Now, Typically, in Western music, we deal with groups of two and three. And sometimes we group them together. Maybe it's three plus three plus three equals nine, two plus two equals four, maybe four and two equals six, but it's groupings of two and three. Five is called an odd or asymmetric meter. And unaccustomed as they were to dancing to it, and as unaccustomed they would be to dancing to Stravinsky a year later, they had to come up with some way of being able to count through this meter. So what they would do was use the name of their impresario, Sergei Diaghilev, Sergei Diaghilev, and that is the way they kept track of the 5-4 they were dancing to. This is what it sounds like.
Yeah. And they gradually all learn to do that. And of course, these days, musicians and dancers take it as a matter of course, no matter what the numbers are in the time signature. The first performance of Daphnis and Chloe featured an amazing array of talent. Uh, the legendary Vaslav Nijinsky as Daphnis, who the year before had created the role of Petrushka in Stravinsky's ballet, uh, Tamara Karsovina as Chloe, who two years earlier had created the role of the Firebird in Stravinsky's Firebird. The conductor was Pierre Montieu, who would later conduct the premiere of The Rite of Spring. The choreographer was another master, Michael Fokine. So this was an all-star cast that presented this for the first time. Okay, let's now go to 1934. In November 1934 at Carnegie Hall, Leopold Stokowski conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra in William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. The performance was a great success. Stokowski actually gave four performances, one of which was broadcast nationally on radio. And by the way, this premiere took place within a few years of premieres of symphonies by two other African-American composers, William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony in 1931 and Florence Price's Symphony in E minor in 1933. Florence Price, who wonderfully has been rediscovered over the past decade or so by orchestras, radio stations, and, and artists. Now this is how the critic of the New York World Tribune described the premiere of Dawson's Symphony in 1934. Mr. Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony took the house by storm. The custom of no applause during a symphony gave way after the second movement to a spontaneous outburst that brought the orchestra to its feet. And at the end, the enthusiasm was so great that Mr. Dawson was called to the stage repeatedly to bow his acknowledgments. It is easy enough to account for this commotion. The Negro themes chosen by the composer are striking in themselves and are employed with skill. The music is vivid with imagination, warmth, drama, and then there is the sumptuous orchestral dress. Nor does the immediate success of the symphony give rise to doubts as to its enduring qualities. One is eager to hear it again and yet again. And yet now, looking back, one writer says, the immediate success should have made Dawson a household name and void him to write more symphonic works. But after just a handful of performances over the next 18 months, the symphony inexplicably dropped off the radar and Dawson never wrote another. After performances in 1935 and 1936, it appears that there were no other performances of the symphony until Stokowski once again, with his American symphony this time, made the first recording of the symphony in 1963. 1963, 29 years after it was premiered. Now that neglect of the symphony was addressed in 2012 by a scholar who said the crucial factor leading to the loss of momentum from which this work has yet to recover was that there were simply not enough copies of the score and parts to meet the demand early on, and before long, conductors turned their attention elsewhere. In the program notes for the performance at Carnegie Hall, Dawson writes this, the themes are taken from what are popularly known as Negro spirituals. In this composition, the composer has employed these themes taken from typical melodies over which he has brooded since childhood having learned them at his mother's knee. He says that the tunes are popularly known as Negro spirituals, but he said he preferred to call them Negro folk music, which is reflected in the title of the Negro Folk Symphony. Decades later, Dawson explained it. He said, I don't call them spirituals. Many years ago, I decided that I wanted to know what do they mean by spiritual. 
I got an unabridged dictionary and I looked it up. There were 10 or 15 definitions of the word spiritual. For example, in Paris, France, they had concerts on Sunday. They called them spirituals. But these are folk songs and we have got to know and treat them as folk songs because they contain the best that's in us. And anywhere in the civilized world, when you say this is a folk song, all the nations prize their folk songs. All the great composers utilize their folk songs, their source of material for development. And simply put, when you call something a folk song, it means you can't ascribe it to an individual author or composer. It is basically the product of a people, of a society, of a civilization. Uh, I have it secondhand from someone who talked to Dawson in his later years, uh, who said very simply, when somebody said, what is folk music? He says, it's music composed by folk. And he simply left it at that, at that. Uh, so here he is, he's talking about the great composers using folk music, and of course we know they did, and we can run the gamut of those who did through the centuries. So he's following examples of all of them, Brahms and Dvorak, Beethoven. Uh, he said he wanted those who heard the symphony to know that it was unmistakably not the work of a white man. Now, in giving you this overview of the symphony, I'm going to uh, tell you that I am indebted to the program notes that he provided for that premiere in Carnegie Hall. The first movement is titled The Bond of Africa. The horn solo you're about to hear is based on the five-note pentatonic scale that's found in abundance in the folk music of the world, including, of course, Africa. So here it is, the opening of the Negro Folk Symphony, the horn solo, a pentatonic melody based on that five-note scale. Dawson says this, this horn solo, this melody, is symbolic of the link uniting Africa and her rich heritage with her de descendants in America. It shows itself in numerous guises, forms, and circumstances throughout the entire composition. Later in the movement, later in the first movement, a theme based on the melody, Oh, My Little Soul Going to Shine, Dawson says, after the woodwinds have sung this theme, a new idea appears in the strings. It suggests the rhythmical clapping of the hands and patting of the feet. I'm going to come back to the second movement, but I'm going to first go to the third and final movement, uh, which is titled, Oh, Let Me Shine. Uh, that's the name of the melody that's the basis of the first theme.
the second of the borrowed melodies here in the third movement is Hallelujah, Lord, I've been down into the sea. Now, I, the reason I saved the second movement for last is because it's been called the heart of the symphony, not just the central movement, but the heart of the symphony. And I'll also remind you of that line from the review I quoted earlier. The custom of no applause during a symphony gave way after the second movement to a spontaneous outburst that brought the orchestra to its feet. So whatever the protocol was about not clapping after the movements, the audience could not refrain. Um, the second movement is titled Hope in the Night. And this one is not based on pre-existing music. Dawson says the opening creates the atmosphere of the humdrum life of a people whose bodies were baked by the sun and lashed with the whip for 250 years, whose lives were proscribed before they were born. A melody in the English horn, that close relative of the oboe, the English horn the melody, he says, represents the characteristics, hopes, and longings of a folk held in darkness. the second movement, that theme is given to the full orchestra. And in the midst of this second movement, between that initial melody and the full orchestra with it, in the middle, uh, there is a passage that he points to. He says, it was music conceived in a happier mood. The children, unmindful of the heavy cadences of despair, sing and play. But even in their world of in innocence, there is a little wail, a brief note of sorrow. Thank you. 
Among those who were listening to the radio broadcast in 1934 was a composer and playwright named Shirley Graham. Five days after the radio broadcast, she wrote this to Dawson. I tried to express some of the joy and pride which I felt in your achievement by the telegram which I sent you in Philadelphia last Friday. The telegram was wholly inadequate, however. I sent it on my way home from the house where a room full of us had gathered to listen to your symphony. Our hostess, a brilliant Viennese, was almost as excited as I, as the hour drew near. She had invited in a group of people, many of whom had attended premieres in London and Paris and Vienna. They were my friends and therefore willing to accept my assurance that they were in for a treat. But I could feel the mental reservations with which they waited. And then your music came flooding into the room. Teacups were set down. Startled eyes were raised. There were people who know. They knew it. And I saw the quick adjustment necessary for this revelation. As the music rolled on, gathering color, intensity, and volume, it lost its purely racial individuality and became a great universal cry which tore the veil asunder, and as the horns peeled forth, oh, let me shine, I saw the light come pouring out. Oh, it was glorious. This is the work of a master, they said reverently. Concert also includes Prokofiev's first violin concerto, and before we get to that, let's just take a look at his early years. It was through his mother's piano playing that was exposed early on to piano music, primarily Beethoven's sonatas, music by Chopin, the occasional piece by Franz Liszt. Eventually, as a result of listening to music and improvising at the keyboard, little Sergei started to pick out tunes. One day in the summer of 1896, when he was five years old, he remembers, I came to my mother with a sheet of paper covered with notes and declared, I have composed Liszt's Rhapsody. She had to explain that you couldn't compose a Liszt Rhapsody because that was something that Liszt himself had composed. At the time, he didn't have a very clear notion of musical notation, so his mother wrote down his first composition at age five, and this is the piece that he composed. short and sweet. Uh, in his memoirs, he said, it's hard to imagine a more absurd title than the one I gave to this composition, Indian Gallop. As it happened, there was a famine in India in those days, and the adults read about it in the newspapers and discussed it while I listened. But, strange title or whatever, that is the beginning of his compositional career at the age of five. Uh, between the ages of 11 and 13, he was tutored by the composer Gliere, and then in 1904, at the age of 13, he was admitted to the St. Petersburg Conservatory, uh, which boasted among its faculty the great Rimsky-Korsakov. We can't get away from Rimsky-Korsakov, he's just popping up all the time. Now, needless to say, he's 13, all of his classmates are older, some were over 30, which sometimes made for trouble. During his first year at the conservatory, he decided to keep track of what kind and how many mistakes were being made by the students in his harmony class. At one, uh, at one class, uh, a student noticed he was over there writing in his notebook, and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm keeping statistics on mistakes. The student said, what business is it of yours how many mistakes a person makes? I came here to study composition. It's nobody's business what mistakes I make or how many I make. Little Prokofiev. On the contrary, it's highly interesting. He looks into his notebook. For example, today you brought in one exercise and it had 11 mistakes. 
Asafiyev brought in six exercises, and there were only 11 mistakes in all six. So it's quite obvious that your work is six times worse than his. So he survived his early years at the conservatory. Yeah, okay. His first public exposure as a composer took place in December of 1908 as part of a concert series called Evenings of Contemporary Music. He was 17 years old. He played seven of his own piano pieces, including one titled Diabolic Suggestion. This is the conclusion of that piece. First public appearance, this is how he announces himself to the musical world. One critic referred to the oddities of his music. Another critic was much more direct. He suggested some alternate titles for Diabolic Suggestion. He said it could be called Wild Sabbath of Dirty-Faced Devils Dancing in Hell or, or Violent Brawl of Two Enraged Gorillas. But having heard that, it comes as no surprise that at this point in his life, Prokofiev had no great attachment to the traditional repertoire. Uh, he didn't care for Mozart because in Mozart there were no new and spicy harmonies. He infuriated his piano teachers because he would make what he considered improvements when he played the standard repertoire. Uh, and then, amazingly, this anti-classical period attitude changed thanks to a conducting class in which the teacher really revealed to him the wonders of the scores of Mozart and Haydn. And you may know that when Prokofiev wrote his first symphony, he turned to the 18th century for his model. He wrote what he said would be the kind of symphony that Haydn might have written had he lived into the 20th century. Now that connects directly to this concert. That's 1917, which is precisely the same year that he began work on the first violin concerto that you're going to hear this evening. Uh, in the first movement, the violin enters with a melody that Prokofiev says should be played sognando. It should be played dreamily.
The second theme of the first movement, the first one marks sognando dreamily, the second one is marked narrante, which literally means narrating. Uh, the violinist David Oistrakh tells us that Prokofiev told him to play it as though you're trying to convince someone of something. What's interesting in the structure, a concerto normally is three movements that are fast, slow, fast. Prokofiev reverses that. He reverses that pattern exactly. So the second movement begins with this little burst of musical energy. Find your own adjective to describe this passage later in the second movement. Concerto was to have been premiered in 1917, but if you know your history, you know that things were a little bit unsettled in Russia in 1917. Uh, Prokofiev actually left Russia shortly after he completed the piece, left Russia for what he said would be a brief concert tour of the West. Uh, the brief tour lasted 15 years. The premiere finally took place in 1923 in the city where the composer was living, in Paris. The audience included, what an audience, Pablo Picasso was there, the ballerina Anna Pavlova, who was famous for her dying swan ballet, the pianist Arthur Rubinstein, and the renowned teacher of composition, Nadia Boulanger, whose students included, among others, Aaron Copland. The Parisian critics found the piece old-fashioned. The French composer Georges Auric said it was Mendelssohnian, which may seem weird considering the excerpt I just played for you, but the truth is, even when Prokofiev is more lyrical, his lyricism is decidedly modern. This is the opening of the third movement.
I have to say the best description I found of the piece overall is this. It is an almost romantic concerto arriving late on the scene. I think that about does it. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy the concert. <laughs>